Here's another Bible study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. Daniel chapter 8. There's an interesting transition in the book of Daniel. Um, you will probably, in fact, I'm pretty sure you won't see it in your Bibles, um, but the language of Daniel, uh, the book of Daniel is actually written in two different languages. In chapters 2 through 4, the, uh, the language, the, 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 the book of Daniel is written in Aramaic. In Aramaic, in chapters eight through twelve, they are written written in Hebrew, and uh, I was trying to figure out why it's written that way and uh, what it looks like. And I'm not I'm not God, so I can't say exactly why He inspired it uh, to be written that way. But chapters two through seven, being Aramaic, they do mainly the prophecies do mainly concern the Gentiles, the nations of the world. And the story about Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar, it has to do with the nations of the world. And so that might be why it was written in Aramaic. In chapters 8 through 12, it is written in Hebrew. And as you'll see as we get towards the end of this prophecy, these prophecies deal mainly with the Hebrew people, with the Jewish people themselves. And so it could be why. Of course, again, I'm not God, so I can't say this is why he did it. But it would, it would make sense that that is why. But it's an interesting thing. In fact, I think that's the only book in the Bible that's written that way in two different languages. <clears throat> so <clears throat> Daniel here, we'll find out where he is in verses 1 through 2. And that's where we're starting this morning. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, to me, Daniel, after the one that appeared to me the first time. I saw in the vision, and it so happened while I was looking that I was in Shushan, the citadel. Now, Shushan is the, it could also be called Susa. In Shushan, the citadel, which is by the seashore. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> And he sold shells there. No, I'm just kidding. I'm sorry. Let me reread that to you. <laughs> Daniel chapter 2, <laughs> verse 2, actually, would say. I saw in the vision, and it so happened while I was looking that I was in Shushan, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision that I was by the river Ulai. So this is two years after Daniel's vision that he had received that was recorded in chapter 7. That vision... Uh, was in Belshazzar's the first year of his reign. Um, here, it's a couple years later. Now, according to Josephus, and also a book known as the Canon of the Kings, which was preserved by a guy by the name of Claudius Ptolemy, um, Belshazzar reigned for 17 years. So if you kind of, towards the end of Belshazzar's reign, uh, Daniel was probably in his 80s. So if you back up, he's probably roughly somewhere in his 60s at the time that he receives this vision. This is not chronological, when he receives this vision in chapter 8. Um, historians have placed the date of this between 553 B.C. to 550 B.C., somewhere in between that. So the place of the vision is in Persia. And it's also in the citadel of the Persian city of Shushan. Again, I said it also could be known as Susa by the river Ulai. Now, this is about 200 miles from Babylon, where this city is. Uh, 
And as we'll see as we get to the end of chapter uh, 8, in verse 27, we're told that Daniel was there on the king's business. And that, to me, is interesting in, in a couple different ways. First of all, um, chapter 5 was the vision that he received about 15, 14, 15 years later. And at that time, it's, t it's, the, it's the last night, basically, of Belshazzar's... Actually, it was Belshazzar that had the dream, I should say that, in chapter 5. And it was the last day, basically, or the last night of his reign, of the reign of Babylon as an empire, too, um, before the Medes and the Persians took over. And so 15 years later... so. 15 years earlier, Dan, Daniel's on the king's business. He's, he's like an emissary or doing whatever he's doing. We don't really know, but he's out there 200 miles away from Babylon doing the king's business, an envoy, whatever he was. 15 years later, Belshazzar doesn't have a clue who he is. You see that in the end of chapter 5. He's like, are you that Daniel that I've heard about, basically? You know, and, and so it's kind of interesting. What that tells me is that Belshazzar had little regard for those that were beneath him you know that's that to me that's one thing that jumps out in there and then the other thing too is if Daniel did this on a regular basis maybe he was sent out to do you know whatever it was we don't really know uh, on the king's business that could also explain why in Daniel chapter 3 you remember the story of uh, Shadrach Meshach and Abednego they were the three Hebrews that wouldn't bow down to the to the statue that Nebuchadnezzar had raised up well Daniel's not mentioned in that account. And so some people say, well, Daniel might have been, just like he's here in chapter 8, he might have been on uh, the king's business at that time too. We're not told in the passage. We're not told in scriptures if that's the case or not. But whatever the reason was that he was not there in chapter 3, he wouldn't have bowed down to the... He's, he's recorded in scriptures as being a righteous person. Ezekiel writes about that. So Daniel wouldn't have bowed down. So there has to be a reason why, and it could be that he wasn't in town. He was out of town when that happened. It's possible. Whatever the reason was, I think the reason why God has him excluded in this account in chapter 3 is because Daniel, and we mentioned this in chapter 3, is a, is a picture of the church that won't be present during the Great Tribulation. And I think that's just a picture that's painted there. Another thing that jumps out at me about this, Daniel being about 200 miles away from Babylon. You know, Babylon, the Babylonians were their captors. And here Daniel, 200 miles away, he could, have, he could have taken off. He could have, you know, he could have defected to Persia. You know, he knows prophetically, maybe by this time he knows prophetically that Persia is going to be the next empire. But for whatever reason, he didn't. He stayed. He was faithful even to his captors, even in a difficult situation he remained faithful. So that just really gives you an idea of the character of the man Daniel that wrote this book. So what's, let's take a look at the vision, beginning in verse 3. <clears throat> then I lifted my eyes and saw, and there standing beside the river was a ram which had two horns. And the two horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. I saw the ram pushing westward, northward, and southward, so that no animal could withstand him, nor was there any that could deliver from his hand, but he did according to his will and became great. Verse 5, And as I was considering, suddenly a male goat came from the west across the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground, and the goat had a notable nor, uh, notable horn between his eyes. Then he came to the ram that had two horns, 
which I had seen standing beside the river, and ran at him with furious power. And I saw him confronting the ram. He was moved with rage against him, attacked the ram, and broke his two horns. There was no power in the ram to withstand him, but he cast him to the ground and trampled him. And there was no one that could deliver the ram from his hand. Therefore, the male grew very great. But when he became strong, the large horn was broken. And in the place of it, four notable ones came up toward the four winds of heaven. And out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. And it grew up to the host of heaven, and it cast down some of the host that was uh, and it grew up to the host of heaven, excuse me, verse 10, and it cast down some of the host and some of the stars to the ground and trampled them. He even exalted as high as the high prince, excuse me, he even exalted himself as high as the prince of the host, and by him the daily sacrifices were taken away, and the place of his sanctuary was cast down. Because of transgression, an army was given over to the horn to oppose the daily sacrifices, and he cast truth down to the ground. He did all this and prospered. Verse 13, Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one that said to that certain one who was speaking, How long will the vision be concerning the daily sacrifices and the transgression of desolation, the giving of both the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, For two thousand three hundred days, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. Now we get an introduction to another uh, person, another character in the story here in verse 15. Then it happened... When I, Daniel, had seen the vision and was seeking the meaning, that suddenly there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Ulai who called and said, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood, and when he came I was afraid and fell on my face. But he said to me, Understand, son of man, that the vision refers to the time of the end. Now as he was speaking with me, I was in a deep sleep with my face to the ground, but he touched me and stood me upright. And he said, Look, I am making known to you what, will, what shall happen in the latter time of the indignation, for at the appointed time the end shall be. So this is an appearance in the scriptures of Gabriel one of the Lord's angels. Gabriel, you know, we don't typically get names of, there's a few names in, uh, of angels that are in scriptures. One is, of course, Gabriel. Another one is Michael, the archangel, and of course, Lucifer, the fallen angel. Those are the only angels that we have given the names of. But Gabriel here is mentioned only four times in the Bible, two times in the book of Daniel, and then in the book, uh, excuse me, the Gospel of Luke, he will appear to Zacharias, who is the father of John the Baptist, and then later on he'll, he'll appear to Mary. And it seems like one of Gabriel's jobs as an angel is to make announcements. And that's what 
Gabriel is doing here. What's also kind of interesting, you know, uh, it's Christmas time, right? And so uh, It's a Wonderful Life is probably playing on some ch movie channel somewhere. And there's all these different things about the Christmas angels and all that stuff. And they're cute. And they're, you know, they're, like, they're, they're just like you and I and everything. Every time in the Bible when someone is confronted with an angel, you know what they do? <laughs> they either fall down dead, they faint, they think that they start worshiping the angel because the angel is so magnificent. The angel always stops them and says, D don't do that. I'm just, I'm just an angel. I'm just a messenger. I'm paraphrasing, of course. But it's interesting to me, and that's Daniel did that too. He fell down um, at the appearance of Gabriel. So all those Christmas movies, they're cute, they're fun, but just remember that's not... That's not an accurate depiction of angels. So let's look at the interpretation of the vision. Verse 20, this is Gabriel relating the, the interpretation to Daniel. Verse 20, the ram which you saw, having, two, the, having the two horns, they are the kings of Media and Persia. So we have the first, uh, first animal in this, in this vision, and it's the ram. And he says here, the ram which you saw having the two horns, they are the kings of Media and Persia. He also, remember in the dream, it said the two horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. We know historically that Persia, it was a Medo-Persian empire, uh, Persia was more dominant of the two nations. Of the, it was a kind of a two-nation coalition, and Persia was definitely more dominant. This vision of this ram also corresponds with the beast that we looked at last week in chapter 7 that resembled a bear that was standing up on one side. That also depicted the Medo-Persian Empire. There in Daniel's dream, he saw the ram pushing westward, northward, and southward so that no animal could withstand him, nor was there any that could deliver from his hand, but he did according to his will and became great. That matches the history of the Medo-Persian Empire. The fact that the ram pushed westward, that corresponds perfectly with the victories of the Medo-Persian uh, Empire over Babylonia and the Lydian Kingdom of Asia Minor. That's modern-day Iraq and Syria and Western Turkey. It matches history. The fact that the ram pushed northward uh, corresponds to the victories over Scythia, which is today modern-day Iran, and then pushing southward the victories of the Medo-Persian Empire over Egypt and Libya. And so the, the ram pushes northward, southward, and west, but it doesn't push east, and that's because east belonged to the Medo-Persian Empire. That was, their, that was their empire, so they didn't need to go that way. They were just going to the west, north, and south. So this vision, what this ram does, it matches history very well. The next animal is that male goat in verse 21, and he's told the male goat is the kingdom of Greece. The large horn that is between its eyes is the first king. And if you look at the history, the first king of Greece was Alexander the Great. And Alexander the Great, and notice in verse 5 that it's in his vision, the, uh, the male goat came from the west. 
And Alexander, of course, came from the west, which was Greece. Greece was west of the Persian Empire and attacked the Persian Empire in the east. And then in that vision, remember that goat in verse 5, it, 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 or the male goat went across the surface. It was like it wasn't even touching the ground, like it was just floating across the ground. That really corresponds to the speed with which Alexander uh, conquered the world. Last week, we talked about the fact that he conquered the known world in one campaign in, by the time he was 28, he basically was a conquered the world. Amazing thing. In verse 6 and 7, uh, it said that the male goat ran at the ram with furious power. It attacked the ram and broke his two horns. And there was no power in the ram to withstand him, but he cast him to the ground and trampled him. And although this prophecy doesn't expressly say it, when you read that account there, it almost sounds like it was one attack and then he's done. And that's it. The historical reality was that it wasn't one battle. There was actually three notable battles that, uh, that this male goat struck the goat uh, to finally render it uh, powerless. And of course, we're talking about Alexander attacking the uh, Persian Empire. The first battle was known as the Battle of Granicus. That's in the present-day Biga River in Turkey, and that happened in May 334 B.C. That was one of the battles, one of the decisive battles that Alexander fought against the Persian Empire. The next battle was the Battle of Issus. That's also present-day Turkey, and that happened in November 333 B.C. And then the final one was the Battle of Guagamila. I don't know if you pronounce it that way, Gajamila, whatever. That's present-day Iraqi Kurdistan. That happened in 331 B.C. Those three battles, that was that, that was, that was, those were the decisive battles that finally the Persian Empire basically crumbled under that and Alexander the Great took over. Why I'm bringing this up, it's like, okay, if you, if you like history, this is like, oh, man, give me some more. If you hated history, you're like, come on, man, this is getting really old. There will be a quiz later, by the way. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> And it won't be open book. No, just kidding. Um, <clears throat> the reason why I brought that up is because these prophecies in the book of Daniel are so accurate that critics of the Bible and critics of the book of Daniel in particular have said there's no way that that was written by Daniel before these events took place. It had to have been written by somebody who took the name Daniel or, or forged it or whatever and pretended to be Daniel and wrote it after all the, all the uh, accounts that took place that are prophesied in the book of Daniel. So that would be all the way to like, I don't know, 200 BC or so at the time of Antiochus Epiphanes. So that's, so my point is, if you were writing, if you were writing a story and you were making this up, you would probably not just say that it was one attack of the ram and, or the one attack that the goat did to the male ram and then the male goat did to the ram, you know, did it in one thing and that's over. The prophecy is summarizing those events into one thing. The male goat attacked the ram and, and conquered it. The reality is there was a few battles. If you were writing the story, if you were making up the story, it would make more sense that you would get into, you'd make some more details because, you know, you want to be colorful, you know, make it, make it the way it is. So anyways, that's just another, uh, another thing about the book of Daniel being written ahead of time. Uh, the prophecy was, of course, written before it happened. All right, in verse 8, as Daniel is watching in this vision, it says, The male goat grew very great, but when he became strong, the large horn was broken. And we know that Alexander the Great 
died uh, in Alexander, uh, died in, I forgot where he died, I think it was in Iran, um, no, Babylon actually, at 323 BC is when he died, and it was a sudden death. He died immediately. Uh, it, was, it wasn't like in a battle or anything, he just died. And immediately after his death, there was a lot of disunity in the power in the in the empire, and uh, a lot of division. And and then there in verse 22, the the uh, prophecy is interpreted and says, as for the broken horn and the four that stood up in its place, four kingdoms shall arise out of that nation, but not with its power. And what happened after Daniel, or excuse me, after Alexander died, was that four of his generals took over and they basically divided up the Greek empire. The general Cassander took Macedonia. The general Lysimachus, and I'm probably slaughtering his name, uh, he took Thrace in Asia Minor. Seleucus took Syria, Babylonia, and Persia. And Ptolemy took Egypt. And so when you, when you look at this prophecy, it matches history. In fact, it matches history so well that the critics are like, There's, it had to have been written after the fact. Well, verse 23, this is where it gets very interesting, and this is where it really starts impacting the Jewish people. Verse 23, and in the latter time of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their fullness, a king shall arise having fierce features, who understands sinister schemes. Back in verse 9, it's when he's having the vision of the horns, it says, And out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. What this little horn did, again, had a major impact on the glorious land. That's a that's a describing the land uh, or describing Jerusalem. It's describing the land of the Jewish people. And again, that's why I think this is written. This portion is written in Hebrew. Now, last week we talked about a little horn in chapter seven, and we we talked about who he was. And don't confuse that little horn in chapter seven with this little horn here in chapter eight, because that little horn in chapter seven. That one arose out of the fourth kingdom, and there was ten horns, there was ten kings, and they gave, three of them gave their power over to this one horn, this, and, and he became great, and, and he was described as the little horn there in chapter 7. Here in chapter 8, this little horn is not the same person, because this one came out of the third kingdom, which was Greece, and he arises out of the four horns of the Greek Empire. So there's two different people, and yet they're both called the little horn. So that, you know, people get confused with that. So hopefully that kind of clears it up for you. From the Seleucid kingdom came a king who rose to power, and his name was Antiochus IV Epiphanes. Verse 23, it said he was having fierce features who understands sinister schemes. And according to James Montgomery Boyce's commentary on Daniel, he said this, Antiochus Epiphany began usurping the throne from his nephew. He then launched a campaign of ruthless conquest. He invaded Egypt and he took over the control of Jerusalem from the Ptolemaic dynasty. This was the Seleucid dynasty, one of those other generals. And so he took over uh, through, uh, uh, by usurping the throne and through you know, scheming, basically. 
Verse 24 says, His power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. He shall destroy fearfully and shall prosper and thrive and shall destroy the mighty and also the holy people. And what Antiochus Epiphanes did in Jerusalem, he tried to impose Greek culture on the Jewish people. The Jew that Greek culture is known as a term is called Hellenism. And so he tried to he tried to force Hellenism on the Jews. Now, there would be some Jewish people who were secular in those days, or maybe not as, you know, uh, God-fearing or whatever, and they probably started, you know, kind of aligning with the culture, just like what happens today with people. We align with the culture. But for the Jewish people that were orthodox, that stuck to the God of the Bible, that stuck to, you know, they, they, they worshiped at the temple and they did all those things, for them... This was terrible, what happened. Antiochus Epiphany expelled the godly high priest by the name of Onias III. Later on, he was assassinated. Um, and uh, Antiochus replaced him with Onias' younger brother, who actually was one of these guys that was adopting the Hellenism culture. He was, he was getting Greek, Greekized, or whatever you, however you want to call it. Um, and so that was another thing that he did. Antiochus also put an end to the daily sacrifices at the temple, which would have been terrible for a Jewish person. He forbade the circumcision of Jewish infants, and he made it a crime to possess a copy of the Jewish scriptures. This guy was, he just wreaked havoc on the Jewish people. Verse 10, it says, The little horn grew up to the host of heaven, and it cast down some of the host and some of the stars to the ground and trampled them. What is that talking about? Well, if you'll recall, and I think this goes back to, in Genesis, the dream that Joseph had. Remember, Joseph had these dreams about his brothers bowing down. One time they were sheaves of grain, and all the sheaves of grain bowed down to his sheaf of grain. Another dream he had, the stars, the sun, the moon, and the stars all bowed down to his star. And when he told it to his brothers and his father, Jacob, Jacob knew right away what he was talking about. He said, you mean... Your mother and I are going to bow down, and your brothers are going to bow down to you? And so Jacob understood that the sun, moon, and the stars was, a, was symbolic of uh, Jacob and, his, uh, and, and Rebekah and his 12 brothers, or 12 sons, excuse me, 12 brothers. 12 brides for, no, excuse me. It's that time of the year, you know, those movies all come back to you. Anyways, so I think what this verse is talking about goes back to, again, Joseph's dream of the sun, moon, and the stars bowing down to him. And I think what this is referring to, the fact that he trampled, he, he, he struck him down to the ground and trampled him, really is a picture of that cruel cruelty that how he mistreated the Jewish people. There are estimates that Antiochus murdered up to 100,000 Jewish people in Jerusalem during that time. This guy was a terrible, terrible Verse 11, he even exalted himself as the high priest, uh, excuse me, he even exalted himself as high as the prince of the host. And by him, the daily sacrifices were taken away and the place of his sanctuary was cast down. His name was Antiochus and he gave himself the name Epiphanes. The name comes from the inscription that he had minted on coins of the time that bore his image. And the, 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 what it said was Theos Epiphanes. What that means is God made manifest. And that's what Antiochus thought about himself. 
He thought he was God in the flesh. And so he had that minted on the coins of those days. Verse 12, because of transgression, an army was given over to the horn to oppose the daily sacrifices, and he cast truth down to the ground. He did all this and prospered. But there came a time when he broke the straw on the proverbial camel's back. It all came to a head in December 168 B.C. What he did in 168 B.C. in December, he sent his general Apollonius into the city with 20,000 troops, and he erected an idol of Zeus in the temple, and then he desecrated the altar by sacrificing a pig on it and sprinkled the blood of the pig all throughout the sanctuary. That was the final straw. Going back to verse 13, Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one that said to that certain one who was speaking, How long will the vision be concerning the daily sacrifices and the transgression of desolation, the giving of both the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, For two thousand three hundred days, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. Towards the beginning of Antiochus Epiphanes' reign, he murdered a Jewish priest by the name of Mathathias. And Mathathias had five sons. The oldest son was a guy by the name of Judah, or some people call him Judas, uh, Judah Maccabee. And when Antiochus Epiphanes desecrated the temple, that was the last straw. And so Judah and his, uh, Judah Maccabee, uh, Judah Maccabee and his five brothers started a guerrilla war against the troops of Antiochus Epiphanes. And other Jewish people, devout Jewish people, joined them, and it became known as the War of the Maccabees. They eventually uh, liberated Jerusalem, and on December 14, 164 B.C., they cleansed the temple and started daily sacrifices again. Now, we don't celebrate this um, Hanukkah, but they relit the candles in the temple after they cleansed this, the temple from this, this desecration. But they only had enough oil in their lamps, uh, holy oil, um, consecrated for one day. And to prepare new oil would take eight days. And so uh, according to uh, their traditions, according to, I think it's the book of Maccabees, um, they prayed that the Lord would let the oil last until the new supply came in eight days later, and the Lord evidently answered their prayer, and the oil miraculously lasted until the new supply was ready. The Jewish people celebrate it as the Feast of Lights, which is Hanukkah. And uh, it's interesting, in John chapter 10, verse 22, Jesus actually attended this festival. He attended the Feast of Hanukkah. In John 10, 22. So, what's interesting about that is regarding that, in verse 23, it says 2,300 days, 2,300 days. There are a lot of different interpretations as to what that means, but most likely, and again, I'm not an expert, so you can take it for what it's worth. Most likely, counting back 2,300 days from December 14th, 164 BC, when the temple was cleansed, was when Antiochus Epiphanes started his persecution in earnest. When you, when, when you, whatever it was, and we don't know exactly what it was. That's probably, that's, from what I can gather, that's the best interpretation. Nobody really knows. So, um, again, you can take it for what it's, what it's worth. 
Verse 25, it says, Through his cunning he shall cause deceit to prosper under his rule, and he shall exalt himself in his heart. He shall destroy many in their prosperity. He shall even rise against the prince of princes, but he shall be broken without human means. And what's interesting, according to the second book of Maccabees, they didn't kill Antiochus Epiphanes. According to the book of Maccabees, God of Israel struck him with an incurable and invisible blow. He got some kind of a disease and he just died. And they said God did it. And so this prophecy, he shall be broken without human means, probably points to that event. Verse 26, And the vision of the evenings and the mornings, uh, which was told is true, therefore seal up the vision, for it refers to many days in the future. This is talking about Daniel in his future, many years in the future. And so Daniel was told to seal up the vision. But in verse 17, Gabriel told him, Understand, son of man, that the vision refers to the time of the end. So in Daniel's time, the vision was sealed up because it was going to be far off in the future. But for you and I, this, for our time, let me just read to you out of uh, Revelation 1, verse 3. Oops, I uh, got my stuff in the wrong screen. Yeah, I really got messed up here. Sorry about that. <laughs> Let me just read it to you. I don't have it in my slide here. Revelation 1, verse 3. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy, this is speaking of Revelation, and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. And uh, so that, of course, is speaking of Revelation. But the Revelation that you, in fact, you women are studying that on Monday nights, that revelate, those revelations, they correlate right with Daniel. I mean, to have a good understanding of Daniel really helps with Revelation because a lot of those things that are referred to in Revelation go back to the book of Daniel. And so it gives you... So anyways, what I'm getting at is it's the revelation here and the time is near. So it's unsealed for us. And so he says there in... Uh, the Lord told uh, John in John chapter... Revelation 1 verse 3, Blessed is he who reads... So for you that are reading the book of Revelation, you got ladies that are studying the Revelation, there's a blessing in it. Those who hear the words of the prophecy, and so of course if you're he, like you come into your church here and you're hearing, we, we taught through Revelation a while ago, or we're teaching through Daniel, and you're hearing the Revelation, it's a blessing. But the biggest blessing is for those who keep the things that are written in it. And hearing may not just be hearing me speak, but hearing the Holy Spirit. You're reading it and the Holy Spirit speaking to you about what are you to be doing in these last days. There's a blessing for you in it, for the time is near. Verse 27, And I, Daniel, fainted and was sick for days. Afterward I arose and went about the king's business. I was astonished by the, visit, by the vision, but no one understood it. So here's some applications for us this morning. Again, you know, this is history, and if you really like history, it could be really, really, you know, it's, it's interesting. But I don't think it was just written for us to have this historical understanding or to have this, you know, have this great grasp on prophecy so we can walk around and go, I know what's going to happen in the last days. It's, there's something else that we're to take out of this. One of the first things I want to bring out, first of all, is the prophecies of the Antichrist. 
When you look at that in Revelation, some people say it was fulfilled historically in the life of Antiochus Epiphanes, which we just studied this morning. And so there's some confusion about the prophecies in the book of Revelation. But Jesus said this in 1 John 2.18, little children, actually John said this, 1 John 2.18, little children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come, by which we know that it is the last hour. So this Antiochus Epiphanes that we looked at this morning, he was an Antichrist, but he's not the Antichrist. He's just, he prefigures the Antichrist of the book of Revelation. Again, Antiochus rose up from the Seleucid dynasty of the Greek Empire. That was the third kingdom in all these visions that Daniel has had and, and Nebuchadnezzar had, the third, you know, the third portion of that Colossus man that he saw in his dream. Um, the Antichrist of the book of Revelation, he's the little horn that comes out of the future revival of the Roman Empire, the ten horns, which that hasn't happened in his history yet. There hasn't been ten kings that have reigned all at the same time and three of them give their power over to one person. That hasn't happened historically. And you could try to do a lot of uh, gymnastics trying to make it fit, but it doesn't. It hasn't happened yet. And so this Antichrist... Uh, Antiochus, and he definitely was an Antichrist. He's not the Antichrist. That's my point I'm getting across to you. Again, also what I mentioned earlier, the accuracy of Daniel's prophecies led uh, the critics to say that Daniel had to have been written by someone after all these things that were prophetically written, that after they had happened. They went back and looked through history and they, they made these prophecies and then they, they, they wrote this book. Well, for a while there, the critics could have claimed that that was, you know, I mean, if you didn't really know, you could go, yeah, it kind of makes sense and everything, until the Dead Sea Scrolls, which is, that's a picture of that. The Dead Sea Scrolls were found. And in the, the Dead Sea Scrolls, they found, there was a shepherd boy that was, he was basically throwing rocks at these, at these holes in, in, uh, down by the Dead Sea in Qumran, and he heard something breaking, and he went in there and, and here are these clay jars. And in these clay jars were these scrolls. Well, these group of people known as the Essenes had, had copied and preserved scriptures, Old Testament scriptures. And these scrolls were Old Testament manuscripts, copies from hundreds of years before. And so what they ended up finding was they found an entire copy of the book of Daniel in these scrolls. And it's the book of Daniel that you're writing, that you're reading right here. It's pretty much word for word what that scroll was that was written. I don't know what century, but it was many years before. And so that really squashed the critics, you know, as far as saying that it had to have been written after the fact, no, because they have a copy that preceded that. Um, what also was interesting was there's a bunch of caves. In cave number four, apparently, they found, I think it was eight times as many copies or fragments, not in entire copies, but fragments of the book of Daniel than any other book of the Bible. There's more of Daniel that's been discovered in the Dead Sea Scrolls. And what's fascinating, what I think is interesting is because those Dead Sea Scrolls, they point to the time of our time right now, the time of Revelation, and God has unsealed those visions or those 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 prophecies for you and I. And you can look at the book of Revelation and know this is true. It's not false. The book of, Dan book of Daniel, it's true. It's not false. And so, um, anyways, 
Dead Sea Scrolls. And why does God do that? Why does he reveal future, you know, why does he reveal prophecy in, in, to mankind to know what happens in the, in the future? Well, one of the biggest reasons is to prove that he exists, that he is God and there is no other God like him. One thing I also noticed in here that kind of jumped out at me was that Daniel was serving as a secular. I mean, he was, he wasn't, it wasn't like Daniel the prophet. He was Daniel, whatever he was doing, the envoy for the king of Babylon. And he's doing the king's business. He's doing a secular job. Um, he's sick. At the end there, verse 20, he's sick. He fainted. I mean, this, these, what happened? I mean, just think of, just think of Daniel. Here he's a young man. He leaves Babylon and, uh, the temple is, you know, destroyed. He knows by prophecy that the, the temple's going to be, re, you know, restored. And he knows all these things are going to happen. Then he finds out about this guy, Antiochus Epiphanes, and all the things that he did and desecrating the temple. And here's this young Jewish man that is loyal to the Lord. And it just made him sick to his stomach, those prophecies. He was faint and sick for days. But afterward, he arose and went about the king's business. I like that. I like that about Daniel. In verse 19, Gabriel told him, at the appointed time, the end shall be. And the reason why I brought that up is I want to read this to you out of Luke 19, verses 11 through 13. It says, Now as they heard these things, he, speaking about Jesus, spoke another parable because he was near Jerusalem and because they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. Therefore he said, a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. So he called ten of his servants, delivered to them ten minas, and said to them, do business till I come. And so for you and I, and, you know, we can get really caught up in prophecy and, you know, it's good to understand what the, what, you know, the times we're living in. It's good to recognize that, you know, we are living in the last days and I truly believe that with all my heart. But what do you do with it? Do you go off onto a, you know, out into the wilderness and I'm going to wait for the rapture of the church and I'm going to sell everything and I'm just going to sit there and wait for the Lord to return? No. You know, Paul thought Jesus was returning in his day and Jesus didn't return. And I'm not saying, I think we're very close, but what if Jesus doesn't return for the church for another generation? What have you done? We need to be about the king's business. I guess that's my point in all of this, is that we, like Daniel, should be about the Lord's business. And, you know, that's inviting people to church, sharing your testimony with people, um, serving in ministries, you get opportunities to serve and things like that. And, and our purpose on life as believers, is not to just to sit and wait for God to come rescue us. Our purpose in life is to be his ambassadors. We're ambassadors for Christ, the Bible says, pleading with unbelievers to get reconciled with the Lord God. And that's what our life should be about. And it's not just, I'm just going to go and I'm going to go to my work and I'm going to preach and you know I'm going to try to witness and I'll just sit in the break room and <laughs> witness all the time. No, we're to be the best employees that, that, that we can be. Because our work and our life is a testimony as well, is what we say. Sometimes they say, you know, um, you should share your testimony. Every once in a while, you should open your mouth and speak it. <laughs> that kind of concept. We're to live exemplary lives. We're to, we're, to, we're to look different and act different from the world around us in all that we do. And that's what we see in the book of Daniel.
So having said all that, why don't we stand up? Let's go, Lord, in prayer. And uh, I'll have the worship team come on up.